Hey everyone, welcome to MCU Fan Show, episode 232. My name is Sean Gerber. In a moment, I'll be joined by Paul Herman for our spoiler review of Hawkeye, episode one, Never Meet Your Heroes, a Kevin Feige production. We'll talk about that. Directed by Reese Thomas and written by Jonathan Igla, who is the head writer for the series. But before we start talking about this brand new Marvel Studios Disney Plus series, I want to let you know about Fan Show Plus. That is the podcast that we have for premium subscribers at patreon.com slash Sean Gerber. You can just hit the link in the show notes, or you can find it on Apple Podcasts if you just search for the MCU Fan Show channel, or if you search for Fan Show Plus on Apple Podcasts, you can find it there. And Fan Show Plus is where we talk about extra MCU news, and we even do spoiler reviews for non-MCU series, because once Hawkeye is done, it will be time for The Book of Boba Fett on December 29th, so that'll be the next series of spoiler reviews coming to Fan Show Plus. And then make sure you're following us in those places you can. We are at MCU Fan Show on Instagram and Twitter. And if you're enjoying the podcast, we would greatly appreciate a rating and review from you over on Apple Podcasts. Thanks so much to everyone who's already taken the time to do so, especially some of the newer reviews saying that this was the best MCU podcast ever. That's very nice. Thanks for that. And now enough of sharing all the nice things you said about us. Uh, on with our show. How you doing, Paul Herman? Well, uh, I just had my my child knock over a Christmas tree, and uh, that was exciting. So, at the moment, it's kind of uh, it's kind of weird because uh, I'm, I'm really excited to talk about these two episodes today, and also worried about what's going on upstairs. So, I'm gonna be <laughs> a little uh, it's gonna be a little be a little distracted, but I think things will, will, will be fine. But uh, yeah, everything's okay over here. It just was a little strange there for a second but other other than that had a great thanksgiving um you know i had a again we had stuff to watch so it was a crazy uh weekend i had my mom even watched hawkeye she talked we talked about it the other day it was fun so yeah we had a great uh great thanksgiving what about you man it was a very good thanksgiving and really excited about having a brand new holiday tradition thanks to hawkeye mm. i love how christmassy this show is for the record, Iron Man 3 is a Christmas movie and has been for the past, I guess, eight and a half years now. Eight and years? Um, yeah, 2013 wow. is when the movie came out. And ever since that very first holiday season, at which point Iron Man 3 was on Blu-ray, that is the tradition. When we decorate the tree in my house, we watch Iron Man 3. And then usually what happens is there's a little pause in the tree decorating so that we can actually watch Iron Man 3. Because we always get pulled into it. Because Iron Man 3 is a really good movie. I don't care what some people on Twitter say. I really love mm. that movie. Mm. And it's been a holiday MCU tradition for me. It's been part of the, the holiday movies that I watch every single year. And now I get to add to that list based on the way Hawkeye starts with this episode and the second one. And because there is, yes, indeed, a second one, since they dropped two episodes, we're not going to cheat that and say we're doing a spoiler review for both episodes right now. No, we're going to do mm -hmm. an episode one spoiler review that you're listening to right now. And then mm -hmm. there's going to be an episode two spoiler review that we will record right after this. So you will be able to enjoy them in close proximity to one another, but they are going to be separate episodes as we've done before, like when we got two episodes of WandaVision to start that series and so uh, thus far, though, Paul, I am having so much fun through these first mm. two episodes of Hawkeye. I think it is a total blast. 
And I think it is the perfect series at the perfect time for Marvel Studios so far. It's exactly what the MCU needs right now because this year has been so, so big. And I know that there's been smaller, more personal things like Black Widow, but of course, inevitably, that expands into the big third act of now everything's at stake. And I I certainly, well, beyond Black Widow, then you have things that are even bigger than that, like WandaVision that could threaten reality in a much bigger way. And then, and even bigger than that, what's going on in Loki with the sacred timeline and the multiverse and all of these things. And even Falcon and Winter Soldier feels very, very big, maybe not as universal or multiversal in scale as something like Loki, but then Shang-Chi, you're dealing with uh, alternate dimensions and threatening, uh, threatening different realities there. And then you go into, of course, what if the entire multiverse is at stake, Eternals, you're talking about all of Earth across thousands of years and so many other planets that could be in jeopardy because of Celestials and on and on and on. You get my point. <laughs> Everything's been so big this year for the most part. And it's really nice for the MCU to be able to show, Marvel Studios to be able to show that they can still deliver big thrills when they go small. Inevitably, this series is probably going to venture into some bigger territory, but so far, it's very, very limited on these main two characters and everything that has stuff to do with them between Clint Barton and Kate Bishop, and it's all still limited to New York thus far. It's all pretty local, and yet it doesn't, so it is small relative to these other stories, but it doesn't feel that way. The stakes can still, uh, the stakes can still feel very, very large uh, because it's about what it what the story means to these characters. And as I said at the top, it's just a ton of fun. Yeah, this is a great example of why I think as as someone like myself who's always loved Marvel comic books and read Marvel comic books for so long, it's because it's such a diverse brand and the universe it has is not just, you know, a universe expanding. Like you said, like we have the Celestials, we had Shang-Chi, we have mystical dimensions. I mean, Marvel is all over the place in tone and things like that. And, and comic books and, and DC is no different, you know, but the thing is what, what makes me love these comic books so much is because what happens with Daredevil or these street level heroes like Luke Cage and whatever, they all that is in the same universe as like the celestial stuff that's going on with the guardians of the galaxy. That's why we love the cinematic universe. Right. And like you said, Sean, you, you said it so perfectly that right after we get, Heavy, heavy stuff. And again, I, I like the Eternals, and I know we both like the movie. Right. You know, we both will defend it. You know, we, we know it has its issues, but it, there's some heavy, heavy stuff in there, which I liked a lot. I love the fact they're making it's a superhero movie that makes you think. And but what we also got, we WandaVision, he, heavy, heavy emotional tones, mm -hmm. you know. And then we've got Loki, which is I think a continuation of uh, WandaVision in a sense of, of a real emotional layer underneath it that's going on, and. Um, and again, lots of great stuff. I love Loki as well. So like, there's amazing things we got this year, but it's very, very heavy on one way or another. One way or another. Even Shane Chi has a heaviness to it. There's a lot of themes in there that I love. Um, so with Hawkeye, it definitely feels like a palate cleanser. It definitely feels like something we're going to be getting, and it's it's kind of meant to kind of. It's well, I'll get to that in a second, but it, it's it's definitely a lot more fun and a lot more just easy, go, a little bit easy. Uh, you say easy listening, easy going, easy watching, if you will. Um, and I think that's really needed right now too. At the same time, I'm not sure if that was meant to, that again. That was the design of this, but but either way, it's what we got. And I, 
I, I'm really thankful for it because it definitely brought me back to, oh yeah, this is why I love Marvel Universe and Marvel comic books so much is because of stuff like this. That I could, you know, go and watch a, you know, Time Universe, you know, Celestial, Guardians of the Galaxy, whatever story, and then I can go and watch you know, read a, a fun story about, you know, two, you know, vigilante characters. I mean, it's a lot of fun. And I think the show touches on the aspects of what makes Marvel so great is these characters and the fact that even though there's greater world world stuff, the little world still matters. And I think that's the thing. The stakes, you know, in any show, in any, any movie, stakes are, are stakes, right? It doesn't matter if it's world ending or if it's relationship ending. As long as they build up those relationships and make them matter on screen, that's all that matters. And Marvel just they have the the secret sauce of making these characters matter and taking those stories from the comic books and really altering them to the way they need to to make them presentable for the mainstream audience. And Hawkeye is no different. And I can't wait to break this down on so many levels of Easter eggs, I think, of just fun things to t talk about in the MCU, what it could mean. But yeah, I I like you, Sean. I, I thought this was a great, great uh kind of change of pace. And a little bit much, not much needed, but a needed change of pace to kind of give us, remind us of why we love the Marvel Universe so much is it's fun. And this is a great you know reason to, you know, to love Marvel because of the fun things we get like from the show. I think in a lot of ways, this series has, it almost feels certainly not tonally and not in terms of TVMA ratings, but in many ways, this almost feels like it has more in common with the Marvel Netflix series than it does the previous Marvel Studios Disney Plus series that we've had this year. And I don't, make all of these points to try and knock what we've had from Marvel Studios this year. I love those big stories. And even WandaVision has its moments where it's smaller. I mean, it's still ultimately a very personal story, even though there are things that, of course, could have far-reaching impacts and may still have far-reaching impacts that we will see in subsequent movies and presumably series. So I'm not knocking those things at all. But I think post-Endgame, we haven't had as many of the smaller-scale MCU stories. And so it's nice to have this right now, especially knowing that by the time this series wraps up, or actually before this series wraps up, we're going right into something pretty massive, or so it would seem, with Spider-Man No Way Home. So it just is, in so many ways, the perfect spot to have this. And also for holiday stories, holiday stories, holiday movies tend to feel kind of small. I mean, I know the biggest thing is, well, if it's a movie that has something to do with Santa having to go around the world all in one night, okay, fine, then I guess that gets pretty big. But still, the main focus of the story is relatively small. So I, I think it fits with the spirit of being a holiday-themed type of show, but it's also exactly what these characters, uh, I think, need right now and what us, as an audience, this is what serves us right now. And, and I don't know when Marvel lays this out in this way. I don't think they really break it down to big, 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 small, big, big, small. I don't really think they do it quite like that. But um, in any event, this is the way that it's worked out. And I think it's really more about deciding what story is going to be best for these characters. And I like what they're doing so far. One thing, uh, one more thing that I want to talk about before we get into the specifics of this episode is, as I mentioned in that intro, we got a different sort of credit thing here from Kevin Feige, where it was it was Marvel Studios Presents, and usually when Marvel Studios says Marvel Studios Presents in any sort of opening titles or above-the-line titles when they first do the credits before the mid-credit scene, it's usually Marvel Studios Presents and then the title of whatever it is. If it's a series, WandaVision. If it's a movie, Shang-Chi and The Legend of the Ten Rings. 
And usually Kevin Feige, his credit is produced by on movies or executive producer on a series. And he is credited here as an executive producer, but they did change it up a little bit where it said Marvel Studios presents a Kevin Feige production, Hawkeye. I don't know if you noticed that at all, Paul, but that definitely jumped out to me. And I don't really know that it has to mean anything other than maybe this is some new deal in Kevin Feige's chief creative officer contract that he gets this sort of thing. And I don't have any issue with it. I mean, I think he deserves it. And he's the one who's been leading Marvel Studios this entire time. But it is putting his name out in front of these things in a way that we haven't seen before. And it'll be interesting to see if this is how it goes in the future. Is this the way it's going to be for every single Marvel Studios movie and series going uh, going forward? Or is it just going to be for Hawkeye and there's some specific reason why it's happening on this series? My guess is we will probably see more of this uh, going forward, but um, and Kevin Feige, by the way, be perfectly gracious and sharing credit all around from the history of Marvel Comics to everybody who's helping out over at Marvel Studios. So I don't really think this is him stamping his name on it to make sure everybody knows he's first. It's really just more of representing uh, the leadership that he's had at the studio and his role as a producer and, of course, the the head of the studio. Yeah, I, I didn't even notice that. I, I I don't really pay attention to credits too much, but now that you bring it up, I do think that's very interesting, and I do think that that could maybe potentially, and you know this stuff better than me. You're, this is more your kind of your wheelhouse, Sean. That when you tell me that, it kind of first thing that comes to my brain, and maybe the listeners would, some of the listeners anyway, would out there would, would be thinking this: is this kind of also him trying to all, not branch out from the MCU, but also a way to kind of put his name and say, "Hey, I'm in charge of this," and I'm, but I'm also like letting people kind of run with it, kind of a thing, like like more like a traditional producer, I guess, if, if you will. Well, like it's like he's kind yeah, of like more I, on the outskirts a little I bit. I think you're onto something because who's to say that uh, we will see or we won't see a Kevin Feige production? attached to things that aren't Marvel Studios. He is producing a Star Wars movie, allegedly. I mean, mm-hmm. it's been a long time since we've heard anything new about it. Oh, boy. But that's, that's on the fan, way. So that's yeah. a fan show plus episode at some point for us to do. <laughs> yeah, but look, it's it's still on the way until they say it's not. So in theory, that's happening. And, and I do think that uh, I, I think you, you have something there in that the whole thing of Marvel Studios presents a Kevin Feige production. You could just as easily see... Lucasfilm presents a Kevin Feige production that this is him uh, taking on even more of that producer role and being recognized for more of that producer role. And look, he deserves it. I'm not saying any of this mm-hmm. to criticize his credit at all. Um, it is different. So it's a change that that I noticed and I, I feel like it's worth talking about. Um, but yeah, this is in, in no way, shape or form any sort of uh, knock on it. I think it's uh, it's well deserved and maybe it is a sign of things to come of him maybe branching out or just, you know, taking that role of saying, uh, just taking that role as a producer within Marvel Studios. And uh, he's not the first producer to have something like that at all, far from it. So it's really just keeping keeping in line with how producers are, especially as big and as successful as Kevin Feige has been, how they're often credited in these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that to me is what it seems more than anything, because Especially with these with these uh, TV shows and how Marvel is branching out more and more, which we'll get into that also. I think you know this is a great example of what I think they could be doing later on, and we touched a little bit on this in other episodes. But I definitely feel that Kevin's is going to be there's going to be so much more going out there with these TV shows that it's going to be hard for Kevin to be as involved as he is with the films as and the TV series. It's Mm -hmm. he's gonna have to. I mean, there was promotions recently, right? So I mean, there's there's a lot of moving parts going on and now he's in, he's in charge of Marvel. 
Plus, he's got probably other things that we talked about just now. Like he's, I mean, he's in charge of Marvel right now, essentially. So, I mean, it's like as creatively. So there's a lot, there's a lot kind of go, coming in all of this at once. And I feel that there's, at least for for uh, Kevin Feige, that he's just yeah. It feels like this. It feels like more of the TV shows maybe less. He might he might have his ha- hands in less on those and more in the films. I don't know. That's kind of that's what I'm spitballing right now. Well, it seems like, I mean, he has his hand involved just as much in a lot of these things. Although, I mean, on average, I would say his amount of day-to-day time per MCU project has to go down just because that's supposed to be the way math works. I I don't know if that's true or not, because for all I know, Kevin Feige does have a time stone, as many of us has suspected, and he does have more than 24 (laughs) hours in a day and more than seven days in a week. It would seem so based on the volume of work that he puts out. But now let's go ahead. And let's talk about this episode, episode one of Hawkeye. And we begin, Paul, back in 2012. We meet a young Kate Bishop, played by Clara Stack, and she's eavesdropping on a conversation, an argument, really, between her mother, Eleanor, played by Vera Farmiga, and her dad, Derek, played by Brian Darcy James. And it seems like maybe there's some financial trouble because they're arguing about the necessity of selling the penthouse. And Eleanor is talking about how solutions don't fall out of the sky. Well, other things are about to fall out of the sky. Dad goes, uh, or Dad initially comforts Kate after they realize that she was eavesdropping. And he says he's going downstairs to work in his office. Meanwhile, Kate and Mom are going to play checkers. And when Kate goes to get those checkers, the Battle of New York begins. Kate runs for her life, calling out for her parents. And there's a hole in the wall where it seems like her dad's office used to be. The Chitari are barreling down towards Kate when Kate is saved by Hawkeye with a trick arrow, no less. And we see Hawkeye doing his thing that we saw from the Avengers, but now it's from Kate's perspective. And we see the leap off the building, the swing through the glass. Mom grabs Kate and dad is gone, leading to a funeral where Kate talks about how she wants to protect her mom in case those bad guys, those aliens ever come back. But she needs a bow and arrow. I love this prologue to this series. A great introduction to Kate, uh, Kate Bishop, even though we're mainly going to see her older, as played by Haley Steinfeld. But I don't know what it is. Well, I know what it is. The Avengers is an awesome movie, and revisiting some of that territory is always yes. great. But this was such a different take on it. We've often seen the Battle of New York as being very triumphant. And I talked about how maybe this series has, in some ways, more in common with the Marvel Netflix series those series did have a very different perspective of the Battle of New York or what they would often refer to as, because it's not official MCU, the incident, as they would talk about on those shows on Daredevil, on Jessica Jones. And so that one really dealt with the fallout of here was the perspective of an average New Yorker, maybe, was kind of that idea in the Marvel Netflix series. But even then, it was all after the fact. Here's what we thought of it after the fact, as opposed to this one, on a ground level, a little girl actually living through this. And I think it was it was a different way of, you know in your head that there's danger and you know that there's a problem here. And they made that very clear within the movies in Captain America Civil War that, yeah, there were a lot of casualty here, uh, casualties here. People actually died. But there's a difference between putting a number on it and having the Avengers feel bad about these sorts of things in Civil War versus focusing that experience on a a child and it makes it scary in a way that it just hasn't been before. I mean, like that Leviathan going overhead from the skylight, 
We haven't really seen as much of that, certainly not from a child's perspective of looking up above your home and there's this gigantic monster thing flying through the air. And I think that even having watched this, it was great to watch it in the moment for Hawkeye. But I also felt like as I was watching this, that this could even boost the impact of the Battle of New York when rewatching the Avengers, because this is now a perspective you get to consider as you're watching that epic, iconic battle sequence. And also, it just so happens to give Kate Bishop a very legit reason for Hawkeye to be her favorite Avenger, because usually Hawkeye isn't anyone's favorite Avenger. Yeah, uh, I I love this opening scene, too. And like you said, Sean, anytime you get to revisit the Avengers, it's always great. And as someone like me, who I, I love the original Young Avengers comic books, I love Kate Bishop's character. And from the comic books, and I, this was a great example of merging that I, the ideas from the from the comic books into the MCU, and why someone would love Hawkeye, and seeing all that from that different perspective was great. It was seeing, you know, you're building up the fact that you know she has she'll eventually have a loss in her life, and they give her more. Uh, there's more reason for her to have more. Uh, reason to focus on these different things in life, like bows and arrows and fighting and things like that, because she's raised by a single parent and, you know, I'm not saying that's right. Or that gives a reason for her to have all this, you know, reason to have all this training or whatever, but it gives her more reason to have a, a more drive in her life, you know, and have more of something for her to like a hero like her to look up to. Cause she doesn't have only has her mom. And, you know, when you, I imagine a lot of people have when they have family problems at home, whether it be a parents passed away or, or what or what have you, or they don't have a real great relationship relationship with their parents. They might have look up to a hero like Hawkeye and someone like that who saves her life. It just makes sense. And seeing that from that different perspective was so great. And it, it really brings back to, I think, what I love the MCU has done is the fact that these big events do matter, which we'll get into that, obviously, in the series, which I think is kind of what it, it's kind of a microcosm of is that what happens in this first part of this episode is there's consequences to these events. And I like that. I like the fact there's not just a consequence of like, Oh, we lost a hero today or, or whatever. Right. It's no, like even when they win, they lose because there's still always bad things that happen. And, you know, Kate lost her dad from all this and that's a big deal. And I think that seeing that perspective of her and having that drive and seeing all that play out in that first part was brilliant. And I love seeing the different perspective of Hawkeye. To be honest, I thought they did a great job molding the old scenes with the new scenes together. Yeah. And I I was really impressed because, yeah, it it sticks out a little bit, you know, here, there, maybe it's a tiny bit. But for the most part, it was pretty smooth. I was like, man, that was actually pretty smooth considering, you know, it's a long time ago now. God, good God. And so (laughs) – so yeah, I really loved this intro and seeing again this ep- this this pretty much gives you an idea of what the whole show is going to have with different themes. Again, I love my themes, and knowing that they're going to be talking about the consequences of, of these heroes' actions and how this affects other people, it's a big deal. And I love this intro. I thought was was incredible. It's one of the best introductions I think in any MCU history. To be honest, I thought it was great. Yeah, I thought it was outstanding, and I thought it was mostly seamless as far as integrating what was new in this one versus what already existed in the Avengers and how much that movie just visually holds up. We're coming up on the 10th anniversary next year, in case anybody hadn't, uh, hadn't noticed that. Wow, yeah, that's it's weird to think wow. of the Avengers as a 10-year-old movie, but that's almost where we're at. I feel sick. <laughs> but uh, I agree with you about Kate's motivation. I, I think that was another strong part of it of why does she feel this need to protect? Why does she feel this need to 
not so much be a hero, but just simply to protect. And, and I think you go back to one of the last things that her dad said to her when she was asking, like, what would you do in a hurricane? And he said, I would protect you. And so that was the role in that family. His dad was the protector. And you could it's very obvious in the intro. She has a much closer relationship with her dad than with her mom, because when they know that she's upset, it's dad who goes and checks in on her. And even when dad initially offers mom the chance to go comfort Kate, mom's response is, well, who are you kidding? Like, of course, it's you. You're going to be the one to go. You're the one she wants to talk to. And mom has to kind of sell her on the idea. Like, moms can be fun, too. And so there is a very different relationship. And dad, in addition to being maybe the closer parental figure for Kate, is also the one who uh, is that protector role in it. So if he's gone, somebody else in the family has to step into those shoes. And Kate doesn't have the relationship, the connection to her mom to feel like, even though that's what mom says, like, that's my job is to protect you. That's not really the way Kate sees it, because for whatever reason, that hasn't necessarily been her experience or her perspective up until this point. So now she feels like she needs to step into the role that her dad played in the family, at least in that respect. And that's what motivates her and to make sure that she's ready, whatever comes up, that she's ready for it. So martial arts, archery, the whole thing. Uh, and that gets us going for Kate Bishop. But before we catch up with her, we do get the main titles. And the main titles change from one episode to the next. But the David Aha art from the Matt Fraction run of, of Hawkeye, or Matt Fraction, David Aha run of Hawkeye, clearly an inspiration visually in a lot of ways in this series, but especially in these main titles. And I thought they were really cool. Um, I thought the, the music for it was great. I really dug uh, those main titles. And then when we catch up to Kate Bishop in the present day, we see her by Stain Tower, and we meet uh, Haley Steinfeld's Kate Bishop. She is 22, as we will find out. Uh, her age will be confirmed in the second episode. Stain Tower, by the way, in case you're wondering about that name, yes, it is named after Obadiah Stain. That's what I thought. On the ah. plinth, it says, the oldest university bell tower in the United States. Its cornerstone was placed on October 20th, 1725, rededicated on July 1st, 2006, in honor of Obadiah Stain. So this was before Obadiah Stane died, so he got to enjoy receiving this honor, and it wasn't taken away after he died. And that goes back to Iron Man. Tony outed himself as Iron Man, but it would seem as though he stuck with Agent Phil Coulson or S.H.I.E.L.D.'s official cover story for Obadiah Stane, in which the public did not know that Obadiah Stane was Ironmonger, had hired anyone to assassinate Tony Stark, Remember, the official explanation was Obadiah Stane was on vacation, and as Coulson pointed out to Stark, and maybe he stuck with this part of the story, small aircraft have such a poor safety record. So maybe the world still doesn't know uh, what uh, what an evil villain, what an arch-villain Obadiah Stane was. Uh, but anyway, I thought it was a really cool Easter egg as we get a brand new Marvel Studios uh, Disney Plus series that takes us all the way back for, uh, for the very beginning. But it looks like you uh, clocked that as well. Yeah, I, I, I was like, wait a minute, because you don't, again, was that just like a, a happy coincidence? I don't know. I didn't think so, but that's kind of what I thought. I was like, hmm, but you, you don't know these things for sure. I, I didn't look that hard into it, obviously. Yeah, I just, I, when I saw Stain Towers, like that has to be it. And then I paused it and it said Obadiah Stain on on there and I, on that plinth. And I was like, okay, well, all right. Uh, and it makes sense. It, it doesn't uh, break any sort of continuity with the MCU. So it's totally fine. And it is interesting, though, to think that Obadiah Stane still has this honor. But 
it is a clock slash bell tower that Kate Bishop is about to wreck. So in some ways, I don't feel that bad about the destruction that she's about to cause. But that wasn't the intent. Kate was just there because she had a bet to ring that bell. And she does, but she also takes out the bell and the clock. So oops. Um, but yeah, the, the music was really fun here as well. I mentioned the main titles, but the score by Christoph Beck and Michael Paraskevis, um, I really like in this bit where Kate is like climbing to reach the point where she can fire the arrow at the tower. It's very, very playful. And it even sounds a little bit heisty, a little bit like a caper going on. And we get this in the second episode when Clint goes back to look for the Ronin suit through, uh, through the wreckage of the, the fire at Kate's place. And it is kind of shades of Christoph Beck's work in the Ant-Man series, but certainly not a copy of it. This is its own sound, but it does have that playful quality to it that I really liked. And I also thought this scene did a very good job of very quickly showing a a very quick demonstration of Kate's skill set. Not that this shows all of it, but we see that she's not just really good at archery. She is that, but she scales a building uh, with relative ease uh, and beyond the skill set. Really, with this being our first impression besides trailers of Haley Steinfeld in this role, just instant charisma, talking about whether or not it's the bell that moves or the dangly thingy. And then uh, when when her friend Greer asks, like, are you sure this won't damage the bell? And she's like, no, as in not sure. And then when she hits the bell um, and her rationalization of the initial damage, which doesn't look that bad, all the most famous bells have cracks in them. All of that was really great. And then, of course, she's busted by security. But uh, Haley Steinfeld just right away magnetic in this role. Yeah, I I have not seen her in anything. I, I miss Bumblebee. I've heard great things about it. It's so good. You got to watch it. I know it's it, it's it, it's funny because Bumblebee is my favorite Transformer, but pre the the movies, and I love them in the movies as well. The first two that I three I watched, I didn't watch anything after that. So um, I, I was like, I just kind of kept putting it off, putting it off, and I've heard great things about her and. Obviously, it was cast as Kate Bishop. I always meant to go back and rewatch it, but this is my first real like sit down with her. Um, she was. Like, wait, hold on. She was uh, Spider Gwen, right? In uh, Into the Spider Verse. Yes, she was. Yeah, she and again voice actress, but still, I loved her as Spider Gwen. So I, 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 uh, I dig. Let me walk that back a little bit. So anyway, this intro. Again, the Kate Bishop, they they're, they molded it a little bit differently from the comic books. The Kate Bishop that I that I'm used to anyway, and and even in the uh, Fraction Aha Run, she's it's more in line with the comic books as far as a, she's a lot. She's a very confident character. I mean, th- at that point, she's already been a superhero for a long time, and it's more of just kind of like he's mentoring her in, in different ways, and and she's mentoring him in some ways as well. But that's a, I digress. But in this series, it's a she's a little more unsure of herself, and Haley really brings that side of it out. And I was immediately like charmed by it. I, I was immediately smitten with the idea of this, like this more of a unsure Kate Bishop, but there's still that confidence there, which I really liked. Cause that's, I mean, you have to be if you're a superhero, right? But I think that they've, she's able to mold this, the ideas from those issues that I love so much from those original Young Avengers comic books and this new version of kind of incorporating those two things together. And it feels like it's still the same character, just a little bit different. And I, I love it. I love the intro to this. Um, the whole thing just felt perfect. And it felt very much like it, it gets you buying into to her as a character. Like the fact that, you know, you see her as a little girl, you come right into her as an as adult, a young adult just coming from college or whatever. And she's, you know, also, you know, a marksman. She's a, she's the best. And now she's trying to figure out what's going on in her life and, and, and everything. And I love that whole intro of everything. The clock thing was hilarious. 
and Haley just does a phenomenal job. I, I was immediately, she won me over immediately. I, I didn't think she wouldn't, but I, as someone who really is a, a Kate Bishop fan from, you know, before the sh- the series, I, I was immediately okay with this new, like different version of Kate. Um, cause again, you, you can't be one for one. And I think there is still that, that, that confidence that to me, I love that serious confidence that she has. Mm. It just, it plays it up a little bit more loosely in this, which I liked. And also, by the way, her friend Greer, I'm not sure if it's an Easter egg, but uh, there is a car- superhero named Tigress, uh, Tigress, excuse me, Tigra, uh, who's named Greer. I'm not sure if it's, it's a coincidence, but they made a very uh, apparent point that she's talking to someone named Greer. Right. Uh, yeah, the the name know, shows so up on like, the phone. She says it aloud at the same time. A lot. Yeah, yeah, I, I yeah. don't know, though, if they're going to ultimately have this person not. go on to that because it might be usually be a more featured role than what I, we got here. Right. But nevertheless, I mean, there still could be a future somewhere Never down know. the line. But I think for Haley Steinfeld and the version of Kate Bishop that she's playing, I found it to be very, very aligned with the comic books in a lot of ways. I, I think the biggest difference to me is at what point in her life a lot of this stuff is happening. And I think like, but sure, the time yeah. when she meets Clint Barton, for example, like it's a very different experience. And also the way, the way life has been lived by so many people in the Marvel Cinematic Universe and that, you know, Marvel, the Marvel Universe for younger heroes had already been such a huge present, uh, presence for so long and so many massive events. All told, I mean, it, it seems crazy, but like it doesn't add up to that many cataclysmic events that all of the world saw uh, throughout the right. MCU at this point. So the Battle of New York is still a major thing as we see throughout this. And then, of course, Infinity War and, and Endgame and on down the line. But I think it's just coming into it and having mm-hmm. the the superhero part of her journey in some ways starting earlier. I mean, in some ways later, because if you compare like her opening when we first meet her in Young Avengers, for example, but she's really younger. Yeah, she is younger than that. But um, as far as the Hawkeye run, though, I think the biggest difference is that, yeah, so much of what there's so much that she already hasn't experienced yet that she's about to. So she kind of gets thrust into it a lot more um, as far as just thrown in the deep end. Uh, with what happens right. uh, in this series. But yeah, Haley Steinfeld is doing uh, a great job with it. And look, I, I wasn't an early adopter with Bumblebee. I only watched it because it was, I mean, I had heard great things about it. And then it was a 99 cent rental on like iTunes or something. I was like, oh, well, I'd buy that for a dollar. So I rented oh, really? Bumblebee and I loved it. And I thought she was fantastic. And I, I don't even know if I had seen her in anything since True Grit. And she was, of course, amazing with that. Uh, but she was very young. I mean, she's still young. I but, forgot. Oh, um, man. So she was great in that. And then I saw her in Bumblebee. And I thought, she's amazing. And I think she would be really great to play Kate Bishop. Cut to like a day or two later was the first report in Variety that she, not that like uh, Kevin Feige was reading my mind. They were obviously already in talks and knew what they were going to do. But uh, it was it really wasn't very long after I watched Bumblebee and thought she'd be great for Kate Bishop that the news broke. And I talked about it on like the Patreon and all of that. And then it became this journey of following her to whether or not she was going to be able to take this role because she had some non-compete clause in her deal with Apple for uh, her Dickinson series. But that Dickinson series had its third and final season that I think is already out now. So that's all done Um, and scheduling somehow worked out. And she got to play this role. And I'm so glad that she did because she's great in it as we get just a first glimpse of in uh, in this scene. And then we cut to Christmas in New York and Rogers the Musical. Certainly one of the more anticipated scenes uh, based on just what we saw in the trailers. We saw there was going to be a Rogers the Musical. What is this going to be? 
and they picked the perfect song or the perfect idea for a song. I can do this all day is the song that they are singing as we watch the Bartons watch Rogers the Musical. And it's, uh, I, I think the highlight for me, though, it's actually Clint and Lila's faces uh, watching the show. Clint, of course, Jeremy Renner. Uh, Lila, as played by Ava Russo, who first played this character in Avengers Endgame from that famous intro uh, introduction scene where uh, Clint Barton loses his entire family. And their faces were just priceless. Also, some of the lyrics of the I Can Do This All Day track, Black Widow's a knockout who can knock you out. And the way they take that super cheesy, dumb lyric and they turn it into Clint grieving the loss of Natasha. Like he focuses on the actress playing Natasha Romanoff. And uh, we see that he's uh, he I think part of the reason why he's able to be so focused on just the visual of that and observing the loss of Natasha Romanoff is because we find out that he has switched his hearing aid off. So he's not listening to any of this stuff that's going on. Uh, but I also got a kick out of the fact that he pointed out the continuity error that Ant-Man wasn't there in the Battle of New York. I mean, who does that? Who points out continuity errors when things don't line up with the Infinity Never. Saga? Uh, I wouldn't do that sort of thing. No. Um, but then the the whole sequence of like Hulk, you know, the magic word is and then goes into smash. I just, oh, man, this was I was mm-hmm. I was dying mm-hmm. laughing during this. It was it was just outstanding. It was everything I hoped Rogers the musical would be. Yeah, it, I. I'm not a big musical person. I know it was kind of played for laughs and different things like that. And I, I thought it was fine. It was, it was cute, whatever. Um, like the do this all day thing was probably my favorite part. Obviously. I was just happy. Um, they didn't go full on Hamilton rap. I think is what I, Oh God, that was yeah. my concern, which no disrespect to Hamilton whatsoever, but I feel like it's the easiest thing to try and parody right now and right. has been for the past few years. So I was happy enough that they just really went classic musical style as opposed to like, let's just, Let's parody what the most popular thing is, the most popular frame of references that everyone has. Uh, I was glad they took a pass on that. Yeah, I'm I'm not a Hamilton fan. It's not it's not my thing. I don't, I just I tried. I just couldn't get into it. So, but yeah, I, I, I there's more traditional. I like that. But for me, what I was really into was seeing you know, you know, Clint uncomfortable. But it it was kind of a bummer because we'll, we'll get it eventually uh, in the next scene. But I thought there'd be more of I, I was starting to get like you know, post-traumatic stress vibes, you know, from mm-hmm. from him watching this instead of, you know, obviously there was a little bit with when he was missing Natasha. But it, that's what I kind of was getting from this. Like he was not like uncomfortable, like this is ridiculous, which I think that was that's definitely part of it. But I was getting a little more like this is like, you know, wearing on his soul kind of a thing. Which I think is still there. I wish I just kind of wish they played that, that up a little bit more in that scene. But we get that obviously in the next scene a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, again, it's 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 kind of like a, they they're trying to underline it a little bit more, which I thought it was fine. But I love the kind of they, it wasn't obvious in the in your face. I just wish I liked a little bit more. Um, but again, I, I just that's more nitpicking at that point because I really like the scene because I, I I got the impression that Clint was like, yeah, this is ridiculous, but. It's most. I think there was mostly because I think he's uncomfortable of what it represents more than anything, and that's what I got from it. And I really liked that that was played up for that, you know. And he's trying, you know. And at, at the same time, and again, I I'm one of the first people to admit I'm not a big fan of the Hawkeye family aspect, but Endgame has really helped me come to terms with Sean because now I, I with that whole scene with his daughter and she's trying to talk to him about it, he's just kind of. You know, he, it's he's, he's there for his family more than he is for himself, mm-hmm. right? And that's the thing I really liked about it was that he wouldn't be there for a number of different reasons, 
but you know, besides them and he's there and he's trying to interact with them. Like, you know, Edmund wasn't there. Like it's like, he's right. trying to have fun with it and, and everything. But at the same time, it's, it's, there's some, there's something more serious underneath it. And I love their, their play off of that. And I, again, I, again, I'm not a Hawkeye family fan, but post end game, I am, um, we're going to host that right now. I am, I'm, I'm in, I'm in now. I'm in, damn it. They well, I think that's, in. yeah, I, I think what you're talking about is a little bit of what Kate Bishop addresses with him in the second episode. Sorry for jumping ahead, everybody. And we'll get to it in that spoiler review as well. But yes, it's that idea of maybe Clint Barton playing things too cool and uh, downplaying his reactions, his emotions to things too much mm -hmm. and not necessarily fully embracing how he feels about things. Because I think that was his approach to Rogers the Musical is I'm like literally yeah, going to true. tune this thing out. I don't care. I'm going to shrug it yeah. off. I'll point out a continuity error because my kids tried to talk to me about it. But other than that, I don't really care. I see someone playing Natasha, dressed like Natasha, wearing the wig to look like Natasha. So that makes me think of my best friend that I lost but that's kind of other. That's the only thing that kind of pulls him into, um, or mm. actually takes him out of the apathy that he was feeling toward that show. And uh, I, I think it gets. I, I think you get a little bit more of what you were looking for, as you said, in the follow up scene. But before we jump to yeah. that, uh, the selfie request at the urinal was uh, <sighs> wonderfully inappropriate, but would totally happen. I am sure there's probably mm. any celebrity who watches the show is like, yep. Uh, so uh, there's Lord. that, but then also the Thanos was right that was uh, I, written out on on one of the urinals. Just it was very funny, and you could you could try to make an argument that it's almost too meta with all the Thanos was right and stuff that you see like that you know trends on Twitter and whatever. But it's also 100% a thing that would happen. Um, yes, is somebody would side with Thanos and, and feel so passionately about it that they etch it into a, a urinal, a urinal, not urinal, a urinal, oh, urinal. Uh, to, to be remembered <laughs> for all time. Uh, so yeah, that that would totally, totally happen. That's just as real I, as somebody right. requesting a selfie at said urinal. And I told you on, on text yesterday, Sean, that that part messed me up. And and, and I'm not, obviously it, you could argue it's meta and, and everything and you're right to, you know, and, and that's the thing. But for me, I, I don't really see those things as much, thankfully, thank God. Um, but I loved it because you have it, what it represents in such a one small little scene. Because remember, not only that, but like think about this that whole what it sets up, what afterwards he says Thanos was right, and that guy walks right up next to him. Right. And it's like oh god, it's like it's like perfect and. What I also love, again, because it's like, you know, is, is Thanos right? Obviously, he's not right. But it's like, you know, it, you pull in a question of, like, what people are sometimes. And, you know, like that. It's just awful, you know. But what I also liked about it was the fact that what he's looking right back at it is that, like, someone would have the nerve to write that right. at the musical, right? And what he went through to make it exactly. redo it. And that's what I loved about it. And how him seeing that. And, that, and again, Renner, I've, I've been critical of him in the past. And I got to tell you, he plays that the whole like trying to, you know, shrug it off really, really well in that. And that little face, little facial feature he gives mm -hmm. is a lot. And I loved it. it. It wrecked me, man. Like that, that whole thing of seeing someone who worked so hard, put his life, lost his best friend, goes to go take a pee and sees Thanos was right. Like shooting right back at him. It's like, oh, right. exactly. Oh. Yeah, the guy, the guy, your friend sacrificed everything to defeat. Like you had to watch your best friend die in order to stop this guy. But oh, just, you know, some random person whom you saved 
and uh, yes. you know, or brought back someone that they had missed or, or whatever the deal was with this person who wrote that, the complete lack of appreciation for gratitude of, of the sacrifice and everything that it took to stop Thanos was just Thanos was right. Uh, but I also think that because you know this is what we do here, I, I can over and we both can, we can overanalyze the crap out of everything. Never. This goes into, I, I think, the state of mind that you saw in the Falcon and the Winter Soldier, where like the world wasn't great for everybody coming back after the blip, right? So maybe that's also what's feeding this. I mean, yes, it, it's something that for Clint isn't so great to see, even though he mostly just kind of shrugs it off. But I also think it shows that just because the just because the day gets saved, the world gets saved, the universe gets saved, it doesn't make life easy for everybody. And so you do have people rashing out. Now, maybe this was just completely empty, superficial snark, but maybe it wasn't. And maybe there's somebody else who has a problem, but we're never going to know. We're not going to find out who wrote Thanos was right on that urinal. I, I highly, highly doubt that. But I did like that, as you mentioned before, Lila was so in tune and uh, credit to Ava Russo, who's a very good actor in what she's doing in this series, as she was in that intro in Endgame, but then also in this series doing even better with by having even more to do. I love how in tune she was with her dad and how she knows exactly what he saw before he walked out and just saying, you know, everybody misses her, but she was your best friend. And, and knowing that that loss uh, hits uh, Clint Barton in a way that's different for everybody else. And as you pointed out, Clint, uh, not Clint Barton, Jeremy Renner as Clint Barton, so good. And I, I've always felt that and, and said as much on the podcast that Jeremy Renner, he's a great actor as far as what happens with him as Hawkeye throughout the MCU. I think it's, I think a lot of the work he's done has been underrated, but I also think that whatever limitations there have been, have been solely based on the material, not on Jeremy Renner as an actor. And when you give him more to do, as this series clearly does right from the jump, you see what he's capable of, which I think most people who've watched Jeremy Renner outside the MCU have been well aware of uh, what he's capable of. Uh, but he's doing a, a great job in this so far. And then uh, Kate is now, while all of this is happening, uh, Kate is coming home. She walks out of Grand Central Terminal underneath that bridge that was kind of a centerpiece of the Battle of New York. And she's heading over to see Mom, who wants to talk to Kate about something, R.E. Jack. Uh, more on Jack in just a bit. Uh, Kate owes Mom Eleanor for the whole clock slash bell tower thing. So she's going to go to a charity auction. And Mom tells Kate uh, not to go out looking to get hurt. Uh, won't be the last time that Eleanor cautions Kate about going out and getting hurt. And I think that's going to be ultimately about a lot more than just, you know, motherly concern for her daughter's well-being. Uh, but we also established more of Kate's skill set. She got her first black belt. I don't think they specified the martial art, but got her first black belt at 15. And what I picked up on in this conversation, this interaction between mother and daughter, uh, Paul, is that even though it became a relationship where it was just the two of them because dad was gone, you don't really feel like, or I didn't really get the feeling that their relationship has really progressed that much. In mm -hmm. some ways, their conversation plays almost transactional where it's just mom saying, here's how you messed up and here's what I have to pay for. And the daughter says, my bad, here's a medal that I got. And mom says, sweet, I'm so proud of you and all your medals. And that's kind of it. Um, and then just basic concern, you know, parental concern for a child's safety. But you don't really get warmth between the two of them. There's the the pleasantries that are just kind of standard in family reaction, uh, family interactions. But 
it just doesn't feel like there's this deep connection between these two characters as mother and daughter. Yeah. By the way, Vera Farmiga, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing her last name right. Uh, she's a just, she's awesome. She like, I mean, I've, I've seen her in a bunch of stuff, obviously. I mean, she's in so much and the Conjuring movies, she's, she's great as uh, Lorraine Warren. And, uh, yeah, I, I love her. She, I, I, when I, again, I, I avoid stuff so much with spoilers, even casting, which we'll get to that in a second. Um, and when I saw her, I went, oh, she's in this movie or she's in the show. This is great. I'm so excited. She's, you know, plays her mom. This is awesome. And I loved their interaction. Um, two great actresses just, just kill, chewing up scenery right here, man. And and what's what's really cool about the scene for I want, I want everyone to really you know emphasize here or to show them is that. This is all exposition. Like they're setting you up and they like the writing's really is really solid here, but it, this is two actors that are just going at it and it's like right. you're not noticing at least for, I mean I noticed it a little bit, but like as okay, we got Black Belt, we got this, we got that. Mm -hmm. You're establishing the relationship. It's written really solidly, but it's performed beautifully. And you have two, you know, workhorses, it's powerhouses working together. And it just, you don't think about it. You're like, okay, cool. You move on to the next thing because they do their job so, so well. And I just, I love seeing them interact. They have a great chemistry together. And I, like you, Sean, I think it progressed a little bit, but not much, if that makes any sense. I think right. there's, there's not like a, I don't care about you thing, but no, there's definitely... No. Right, right. We, we, that's obvious. But what I like about it, though, is that they're not on the same page. And then that's important. And I think that that's what's really cool about Kate. And it kind of emphasizes more what I was saying before. When her dad dies, she has more reason to do those things like, you know, black belts and archery and, and I'll get all these medals because her mom is distracted. And there is, even though there's there's a, there's a love there and they care about each other, there is that that's been established and that makes more sense of why she's able to do the things she does because she's been on her own a little, a little bit for doing her own thing. Like, hey, I want to do this. Okay, here, you know, go do it. Hey, I broke this. Okay, I'll fix it. You know, you're establishing that. That makes sense to where she's kind of made mistakes already in the past through her, you know, archery through her, you know, fighting or whatever. And mom's kind of had to clean it up. So you've, she's already kind of made some mistakes in the past that we, you know, she's learned from. So it kind of, again, adds fuel to why she's able to do a lot of things in the show already without having to be shown, you know, you know, what to know. Some people online that I don't even want to repeat but there's you know complain about things about oh she could do anything it's like they established this it's pretty obvious well and i don't I think, think we see that she can do anything we just see that she can do a lot of things and i think what right right what we'll get to is when we get to like fight sequences later on in the show is like i she's skilled but far from perfect and far from a master exactly. at these mm -hmm. types of things and so i really didn't bump up against any of that i, I just i like the the efficiency of Yes, she's good with a bow and arrow, but it's not just that. When we see her scaling the wall in her opening scene, or we get references to black belts and medals and all these things that, that Kate's been up to some stuff and maybe had some time because she wasn't always spending that time with her mom and, and being super close because it looks like mom was really putting all, a lot of her energy into her company and building a life for herself and her daughter because they already weren't in a great financial position, it would seem when Kate's dad died. And there also is a very different perspective. Like Eleanor mentions how certainly alludes to the point that Eleanor hasn't always been rich. So Kate's dad was, he was born into money. He was born into wealth. Kate obviously was, 
but that wasn't Eleanor's life. And so you kind of see how a character like Eleanor is really more of somebody who's had to scrap for every single thing that she has perhaps in life uh, and had to work for it in a way that's maybe given her, uh, as I said, a perspective that Kate just doesn't have. I mean, she makes that point to her that young people and rich people, the way they think that they are invulnerable and they're neither of those things. And Kate is neither of those things. So I think there is that shift in perspective with these two characters. And maybe there is a part of that where Kate can't necessarily be good enough for her mom or whatever the case may be, although that's not really totally the feeling that I got from it. But either way, there's some strain on that relationship. And there always kind of has been, uh, as we saw in uh, in the prologue. And then to add to those issues, now we have a new fiance in the mix, although Kate doesn't yet know that uh, part of the relationship. And we'll talk about that when it's revealed uh, a little bit later on. But we meet Jack Duquesne as played by Tony Dalton. And who is Jack Duquesne? Well, in the comics, he's swordsman. He trained Hawkeye. Uh, he's a morally complex character. He's done some good stuff, done some bad stuff, but the bad stuff usually gets in the way of him being seen as good on those occasions when he might have tried to do the right thing. Um, and it's really hard to know uh, where he stands in this one, Paul, just based on what we have in these first two episodes. It, it, we also don't know, by the way, because I mentioned in the comic books, Jack or Jock Duquesne, the swordsman, trained Hawkeye from when Hawkeye was a kid and at one point left uh, Clint Barton for dead. We don't know if that connection or any type of connection between these characters exists yet in this series. It's possible that it does because Jack mm. really wanted that Ronin sword, but he's also just a sword collector in general. So I don't know specifically how much this will or won't be like the comic books, but if you're not a big, big fan of, of Jack Duquesne just yet, I don't know that you're supposed to be. Um, but mm -hmm. I also, I'm not, uh, we'll talk more about this when we get to episode two, but this is not a guy I'm ready to just firmly assign the label of villain. Yeah, they're, like you said very, very well, a very complex character in the comic books. And I'm not overly familiar with Swordsman. Uh, he's not exactly a prominent character by any means. And I think his inclusion in the series, which I did, I, again, I, I avoid spoilers. I don't know anything. And when this guy shows up and with a mustache, and I'm like, okay, whatever, you know, you know, moving through the motions. It wasn't until the second episode, we'll wait, we'll save that for later, that I was like, oh, wait a minute. Oh, 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 okay, I get it now. And so with all that said, this is going to be interesting because I, again, I don't know what's going on. And you brought up a great point as far as, how they're get, how what they're going to do with this as far as the MCU goes. Obviously, they included him for a reason, mm -hmm. and there's a lot. There's actually a lot of different ways you could go with it right now because this show is about Hawkeye. It's about handing it off to you know Haley Atwell, obviously from you know Jeremy Renner. But what's interesting is what if Jack Duquesne is involved in both Hawkeye's origins in some way, and right. they make it kind of more intertwined, and it gives the Hawkeyes more. They don't need a connection necessarily. But as it gives, you know, Kate and um, I'm gonna call him Jeremy, uh, Clint, a little bit of a connection now. Like, oh, my God, like, that's not that's no good. Like, he's kind of a bad guy. And what if he's not, you know, again, there's all these different aspects. I kind of like that idea. Um, it also is interesting that the way they introduce him in the show is that, again, he's in the, in the comic books. He's a you know vigilante superhero, whatever, you know, if you want to say antihero, uh, he's an established character. Jack doesn't seem like he's going to be putting on a costume by any 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 
anytime soon. And I know that Marvel Comics is introducing a new swordsman, or they have already. So um, I wouldn't be surprised if he's going to be more of a mentor character for many different characters right now. And so I'm really excited to see because I loved, you know, we'll, go, we'll save that for the next episode, but I, I loved, I, I really liked this character. He was very charming. Like they wrote him perfectly. And he, I, he really right. shines in the next episode. I really can't wait to talk about him in the next one. But, um, I did like what they kind of set up with this. And I, again, I didn't know he was a swordsman until the next episode, really. So I just kind of was watching and watching, you know, pretty much right after another. So, um, but yeah, this was a really interesting, uh, addition. And like I said, I, I, my prediction right now is this, I think there's a very good chance that they're going to, they could include both origins or he's, he'll be involved in both her and his origin and somehow tie that all together. And he'll also have some kind of mentor mentee character like, Jeremy Renner's Clint Barton does with with uh, Haley uh, Steinfeld's uh, uh, Kate Bishop. So I'm that's kind of where I'm going with this right now. But uh, we'll see. But yeah, I, I immediately like this character right off the bat. I wouldn't be surprised if he has a connection to Don't Call Her Val. Oh, I could really see this being a guy who's worked with her for a long time. Yeah. And, OK. And this is an assignment. And it has something to do with Eleanor and Bishop security and the whole thing. And that's why he's trying to get closer to her, maybe trying to get closer to Kate as well. Um, and maybe also trying to get closer to Clint Barton. I mean, you never know, depending on that connection. And we know that Don't Call Her Val handed Yelena a target in Clint Barton in the post credit scene for Black Widow. And it's been out for several months and on Disney Plus for a while, so I can go ahead and spoil that. So yeah, I, I feel like there might be something there, but maybe not at all. And he's exactly what has been presented thus far. But we'll get into it when we discuss uh, more of that, of course, in, uh, in episode two. But uh, then we cut to a Barton family dinner. The Bartons are dining out, minus Laura, played by Linda Cardellini, who does appear. She's just not here in New York with the rest of the family. I don't know if it's for the reason that they gave us in the story, where the point of the trip was for Clint to spend more alone time with the kids, or maybe Linda Cardellini just wasn't available those days when they had to shoot those scenes. I don't know. Um, but regardless, creatively, it's valid. And I do think that it was nice to see Clint just being a dad with his kids, if you're going to give him a family, then let him be a family man in at least some respects. We don't really get a whole lot of that in the MCU, and it's very difficult to do that because you're trying to tell superhero stories for the most part. So to take advantage of the series format and give us these, these scenes between dad, Clint Barton, and his kids, I thought was really great, and, and I enjoyed this one, and I like them planning out their Christmas activities, some of which we know Clint is doomed to miss. We can be sure the three activities that the kids list are making a gingerbread house, which we know Clint will miss in episode two, Christmas movie marathon, and then ugly sweaters, and then we see that the restaurant has picked up the tag, uh, not the tag, the tab for, uh, they picked up the tab, so uh, dinner is on the restaurant for the Bartons. Clint says it's not necessary, and then the waiter says, it is necessary, you saved our city. And I, I thought that was a really great way of showing how much people appreciate the Avengers. Not everyone. You do have that ingrate who wrote Thanos was right, but you have some people here who really do appreciate what the Avengers did, and they recognize that Clint Barton is part of it. So in so many ways, he can be an easily overlooked Avenger, but not in the eyes of this restaurant uh, and the people at this restaurant. 
And it just shows that there are people in the world, not just Kate Bishop, who see him as a hero, even if he doesn't feel that way about himself. And of course, the Ronin suit ha may have something to do with why Clint doesn't feel that way about himself, but the rest of the world doesn't know that, because as they confirm for us later in this episode, the identity of the Ronin remains a mystery. But I like this moment of uh, the restaurant picking up the tab for uh, for the Bartons. Yeah, this was a more good stuff. I felt um, again. I, I'm more in line with the family now than I ever was before, and th this was a necessary scene established. That you know, again, I, I like the the subtlety that he, uh, at least at this point in the in the show um, that he's showing that he's still he's trying to act normal right now even post everything and he's trying his best to enjoy his family and things keep reminding him of what he is exactly or what he was and everything so i think even though it was a good nice gesture and it was great um it's emphasizing kind of the world that he is really lives in and what or what the reality he lives in and what the reality he's trying to, to make for his family and they're two different things and i like that i like the fact that you know, he's trying his best to, to be normal, but he's just not. And he's never going to be in these public settings like like he is, you know, unless he's on the farm. And, and I think that now what's interesting is that now his kids are older, they don't necessarily just want to be on a farm. You, you know what I'm saying? So I, I feel like that's kind of also playing a factor in this a little bit. He's having he's has no choice but to go back out into the world a little bit. So it's interesting. It's, it's really I, I like there's a lot going on here, I think. And and I love what they're trying to do with Clint in, the, in these scenes. Yeah, I agree. I, I love it as well. Then we get to the charity auction, which is also a black market auction. But for right now, we start with the charity auction. And Kate is rocking an all-black tux, which has the unintended problem-turned-benefit of her being mistaken for a member of the waitstaff. We meet Armand Duquesne III, played by Simon Callow. And you may recognize, or I recognize Simon Callow. I'm not that he hasn't been in other things since then, many things since then, but... I will uh, often remember Simon Callow as Vincent Cadby in Ace Ventura when nature calls, but there is no guano. Yes! There is oh. no guano on his shoe this time around. Oh. Uh, instead, he's talking shit. He is telling Kate about uh, the engagement of her mother, Eleanor, to Jack Duquesne. Armand is no fan of Eleanor. And, of course, Kate is rocked by this news that her mother is getting married and she has to find out from this dude whose brownstone she barely remembers having brunch in, as opposed to finding out from, oh, say, her mom. And uh, I think we saw, as I've, as I've been saying, we saw from the very beginning, there's some sort of strain on this relationship between Kate and Eleanor. And stuff like this really doesn't help. Kate misses her dad for sure and is not going to immediately trust a new guy showing up. But I don't really think this is about that. I don't think this is just the general... It's always awkward and uncomfortable if you've lost a parent and the surviving parent is going to get remarried to someone else. I don't really think this is about Jack yet. I mean, there are issues with Jack uh, later on, but it really is about, from Kate's perspective, I think, and what she's so upset about, it's about Eleanor not being open and honest with her. And this is part of the whole problem, is them not being able to have the type of connection that maybe a mother and daughter ought to be able to have. And from Kate's perspective, a lot of that has to do with Eleanor just not being honest with her. And this is certainly one of those instances. And there's no question that there would have been opportunities for Eleanor to talk to Kate about this without Kate having to find out from Armand. Could have told Kate before they left for the charity auction, even if they were running late. So what? This is an important piece of information that I need to make sure you know. Or she could have just called Kate 
and told her over the phone when it happened. Any one of those things would have been a better way of handling it than the route that Eleanor took. Yeah, it was. I do. I think if there's one criticism, I will say is the way they kind of wrote that in. Like, I don't think a mom would have waited that long to like. You know what I mean? Like, I I just think she would have well, told her. We a don't lot get sooner. a firm date on like. I don't remember. I don't think they said exactly how long ago the engagement was. Like, for all we know, the proposal was like three days ago. I, I don't really sure. know. Although right. you would think like your daughter would be one of the first people you would call <laughs> to say, uh, yeah. Uh, but I think that's the point, though. Is like I, I think you're right. the point of that is not to show this is normal. The point of that is to is to illustrate this relationship that we've been characterizing as at least somewhat strained like here's here's an even bigger example of it is that mom has this big news and, and doesn't tell her daughter yeah I, that's a good point i just i felt like that was a little even because again I, I look at the relationship as it's strained but not that to that level even i mean but you're right i I just think that's a little, it just seems a little bit too far-fetched and convenient to wait and find out and like, oh my God, you know, that again, that's just how I felt. Like I didn't really feel that was totally workable. Again, nitpicking because I love, I love the show and these episodes that I felt was a little bit more of convenience uh, mm-hmm. for them to kind of add the drama there, which again, I get it, but it just, I feel it like the entire like, engagement might be one of convenience or transactional. Like that's also part of my reading of it so far is. Mm. I haven't seen anything between Jack and Ele- uh, Eleanor that makes me feel like they're actually in love with each other so far. You know, I okay, we'll wait to the next episode because yeah. I think at this point it's hard to say. And you're just like, OK, like cause you don't know because Kate's been off, you know, doing her thing for so long. She doesn't really know what's going on with her mom. And again, there's such there's such a disconnect between the two people. Again, they established that. And that's good because it makes more sense to her to be surprised that Jack all of a sudden her getting married. So, again, that doesn't surprise me. It's just how she goes to tell her. It just seems like I don't know about that. Um, but again, like you said. There, there's, there is, a, there is something wrong in the relationships, and that it does seem to be driving that aspect of it. But, but yeah, I, I don't, I don't know. I, I that's what we'll get in the, we'll wait. I'm saving all that for the next episode because there's lots of, lots of good Jack stuff. I think obviously in the next episode, so we'll wait for that. But yeah, I, that was my main criticism of this line. I liked everything else for the most part. Um, lots of good setup. Steinfeld, Haley Steinfeld is, is so good. She's everything. Anytime she's on screen interacting mm-hmm. and, and, and playing off of the, you know, the guy from East Ventura, which I forgot his name already, but I kept seeing him going that, that character actor. I've seen him before and something I, I like a lot. And when you said, and I saw East Ventura too, I went, that's it, you know, but, uh, but yeah, I love, I love her interactions with him and she's just so great. So I, I didn't, I, I, this stuff I, I liked, you know, for the most part, besides the whole engagement thing that she found out about. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely, um, I liked what their setup here was was going in with the whole sword thing. I think the story really needed that. I think it needed that revelation for Kate to just right. kind of reaffirm, like, this is why here's another shining example of why I had this uncomfortable relationship with my mom, because we already see that it's not quite where it's supposed to be. And why is that exactly? Well, here's kind of one of the reasons why, or here's an example of it. Haley Steinfeld, I thought, played that perfectly. And then uh, she goes to get some air outside. We meet Pizza Dog, uh, as played by Jolt, is the uh, name of the dog. And we need to know that name because Jolt plays Pizza Dog with just the subtlety and nuance of a master. Uh, just an uh, unbelievable job by Jolt as the pe- as They don't yet call him Lucky. He's just Pizza Dog so far in the series. Um, Kate sees an argument between Eleanor and Armand that Eleanor brushes off. 
and Kate follows Armand down to the aforementioned black market auction. So much for charity. Jack is there, and Armand says he's reached a breaking point with Jack's fiance, and Jack just tells the old goat to leave her alone. And we see a, tri a Triceratops skull being auctioned off, followed by a Ronin sword, which Armand wins for about like $475,000. And uh, Jack was bidding on it as well, although not with his own money, with the money he plans to inherit from Armand, which becomes relevant later on in the story. And uh, we discover a few things about the Ronin suit, like how did it even end up at a black market auction in the first place? It was recovered from the wreckage of Avengers Compound, so clearly there were lapses in security after the final battle, which kind of makes sense. I mean, we did see in the very background when Cap goes to take the stones back, we see like the cranes in there. You have a lot of personnel who have to be part of a cleanup for Avengers Compound, so I could see how things would be uncovered and smuggled away from Avengers Compound and end up in a situation like this. And this is where they clarify for us the identity of Ronan remains a mystery, but New York's underworld still holds a grudge. And meanwhile, uh, in order to not be caught, the cover story for Kate Bishop is that she that Gary told her to go down there, which is uh, only which works out great until Gary actually shows up. But then uh, such an, this was really funny and, and made me laugh when that whole bit of you don't even know my name, I quit um, for Kate Bishop, I thought was great. And she just walked off. And, and I love how Gary bought it, too. Like, you can't quit. Just, uh, you know, Kate Bishop joins the great resignation. It happens. Uh, so then we see uh, Jack made that comment, as I said, about uh, his inheritance, his inheritance with Armand, which maybe points to a motive. And it's not just the sword that has been recovered and is part of this black market auction. The Ronin suit is also there. But before anybody can uh, win the auction for the Ronin suit, the, compa the companion piece to the Ronin sword, the tracksuit mafia crashes the party. They are looking for a watch. This gives Jack the opportunity to take the sword that he did not win, uh, but he just gets to take it anyway. And the tracksuit mafia looking for the watch, and Kate sees the Ronin suit and goes into hero mode to save Armand, Jack, and others. And as we mentioned uh, a little bit ago, an answer to a criticism I don't really care about, but if it's out there, fine. Uh, people saying she's too good and too skilled all at once, whatever. I really like Kate's fighting style in this scene because it's not really the fighting style of a master. It is very, very chaotic. It's a little controlled to some extent, but there's a lot of chaos within it. And what you really see is Kate just being very good at improvisation and being very resourceful with all the wine bottle strikes and kicks and all of that stuff. And I, I love the fighting because it's not super polished and she really does take a beating and I, I think Kate's greatest asset within that fight is just her ability to keep fighting. She just keeps getting back up. No matter how many times she gets punched or slammed around, she just gets up and she keeps going and uses whatever she can, whatever she can get her hands on in order to defend herself and defend others. So I, I love this whole fight sequence for Kate Bishop. This really worked for me because, again, to answer those people who think that you know she's perfect at everything, like you said, Sean, she's not perfect. It's very much a clumsy, very barely get by like fighting style. But why it works is, and again, I, I brought up the whole idea that she's made mistakes before. She's been constantly doing things and breaking things. And, and she's, she has not experienced fighting per se, but she's done enough stuff to where it may, it, I believe everything that she's doing, that she's able to do a lot of it because of all, you know, 
what we established before that her mom's had to clean up a lot of things before that again it, she just has a lot of experience in the stuff as uh, not a lot of experience but experience enough to where she can get by and it's just just enough and i think that we're seeing the development of a you know basically you know early, obviously the early stages of a superhero being on screen and we haven't really seen that in right. the mcu from a um you know, from from a pure fighting standpoint, obviously, we've gotten mostly, you know, superhero things like, you know, Steve Rogers was a soldier before. And we kind of see a you know, montage here or there of him becoming Captain America and Iron Man, things like that. But someone kind of coming to their own like Kate Bishop is doing. We're seeing that right now that this very, you know, capable person is, is getting by and she's barely squeaking by and almost getting killed, but she's right. able to do it because she, she's a good, she has all this experience well, before. And the tracksuit mafia are not the hand. These guys right. are, are bumbling idiots. So they're, they're not the most skilled hand to hand combatants point. that you're going mm -hmm. to come across. And this is also where the environment works very well. You have these different aisles in the wine cellar that allow her to isolate herself and not be surrounded by like five guys at once. When you cut to a fight on the street out on the street later, now Kate's at an extreme disadvantage because she doesn't have the places to duck and just take out and isolate members of the tracksuit mafia and take them out one or two at a time. When they surround her, all she can do is run for cover into the car. So the way that this actually plays out is very hesitate to use the word realistic, but it's showing that Kate Bishop is skilled, but not necessarily somebody who's going to, she's not Shang-Chi on the bus or something like that. She's not on that level, but she is very, very skilled and, and capable of defending herself. And more important than any of that is she has the the willingness and the courage to keep fighting. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm with you on that one. I, the tracksuit mafia is not like you said the hand, but not again, the hand, this is not this the is, ten rings. Just no, no, yeah, right. Just a, but, just some buffoons. Yeah, but this is a good training ground, and this is why I'm really excited about the show. Is, is we're going to be seeing the development of of Kate Bishop's character. I mean, like I can't wait to see her in, in, as she develops in the show and other films and shows as we go on in the future. So, this is what I think. It, take it all in, people, because I really do feel that. We're not always going to be get these. I mean, maybe we will more so. As I think with like Moon Knight and uh, with Miss Marvel coming up, maybe a little bit more of them developing their fighting skills. Maybe not so much Moon Knight, but but maybe Miss Marvel and things like that. But I think from this standpoint, take it in because I think that we're going to see the development of a, a really interesting and awesome character like Kate Bishop, and we're seeing the early stages of that and her develop. And I again, we don't really see that too much in the MCU. And I think we're, we're, we're getting kind of an inside view of that, which is really cool. So I, 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 this all worked for me personally. Yeah, I thought it worked great. And then one of the tracksuit mafias, he's outside going through the stuff, uh, happens upon the watch that they were looking for, lot number 268. I don't know whose watch this is. We don't really know the full nature of it. Also recovered from Avengers Compound, maybe, I, I suppose, but... I couldn't tell in looking at the watch whose it was. I mean, immediately you think Tony Stark just because Tony's or Tony when he was alive in the MCU, he was rich. He could afford big, expensive watches. But I feel like there's got to be some other reason why this watch is seen as so valuable. And I wonder, I mean, Tony Stark feels like the easiest, most obvious guess. And maybe that's the, the most likely answer to this. But I don't know. I, I feel like it could very easily be something more sentimental than that. Like a, a Tony Stark watch, I don't know if that means as much to Clint when inevitably he discovers something about this watch, if that even matters ultimately, but I, I think it would. Otherwise, why 
why have the watch be the thing that they're after instead of the Ronin suit or the Ronin sword? So if they're after the watch instead, there has to be a reason. Is it going to mean something to the track uh, tracksuit mafia? Is it going to mean something to Echo, whom we're going to meet in episode two? What is so important about this watch? I, I really have no idea. And so I have the most obvious guess of Tony Stark, but maybe it's a watch that belonged to, I mean, Natasha Romanoff or something like that to have a, a stronger emotional connection for Clint Barton. Maybe it's Clint's watch. I don't know. Um, <laughs> maybe it's somebody feeling like if they had the watch, that would solve the mystery of the identity of the Ronin. Uh, I, I really don't know. Did you have any guess of whose watch that was? No clue. I I figured I figured that they'd probably explain it eventually, so I'm just kind of waiting. But I had no idea. Besides, you know, I I was more focused on the costume myself, as you, as we all know, I'm a costume sure. guy. So I was I, I was just kind of yeah, cool watch. I don't care. Give me the Ronin suit. So yeah. Um. I mean, well, there is an answer that's more obvious than Tony Stark. The watch clearly belongs to Mephisto. The face was red. Oh man. So dude, brilliant. I, I love I this. I think. I think we've it's, cracked it. So you're you're what welcome. If it's Wanda's watch, and it's it's actually was <laughs> Mephisto's before that. Right. There I, I we go. That's the only logical explanation. So let's just that's go logical. with that until we're we're proven wrong. So uh, we also get a look at or pizza dog attacks as this guy finds the watch, and then you know I'm not a big fan of dogs getting kicked, but uh, thankfully Kate was there to help out. Pizza dog takes off. And so uh, Kate in full Ronin costume saves pizza dog from traffic. And we finally get a look at Fra Fee as Kazi Kazimierczak, who is also known as Clown in Marvel Comics. I don't know if we're going to see that identity or not in the show, but uh, Fra Fee's Kazi is watching the Ronin, but has to make a run for it because the cops are there. And then we cut to the Bartons watching the news from their hotel room, and they get to see, as Lila points out, the amazing thing of a ninja saving a dog. Clint, of course, recognizes the suit and starts reliving his past. So just in case you weren't fully caught up or didn't totally remember from Avengers Endgame, you get a recap of Clint as Ronan in that film. And then we cut back to Kate uh, giving stashing Pizza Dog at her apartment, feeding Pizza Dog, and of course, giving him the pizza that makes him Pizza Dog. And then she goes to Armand's apartment or Brownstone. She finds that Armand has been murdered um, and... But before making that discovery, he sees that Armand has monogrammed butterscotch, because why wouldn't you have that if you are Armand III? Um, but he has been murdered. He's been cut down by a sword. And then Ronan, uh, or Kate Bishop in the Ronan costume, takes off as we see, I don't know if it's a housekeeper, or maid, or assistant who shows up with the dry cleaning and dinner for Armand and makes the grisly discovery. But then Kate has been followed by the tracksuit mafia. They don't know that she's Kate yet. They just know it's the it's just someone in the Ronin costume with whom they think is Ronin. We get uh, a lot of bros. I mean, we heard them before. Let's go, bro. And now we got we got you now, bro. Uh, just to name a couple of these guys, Ivan Bonionis is played by Alex uh, Ponovic, and this is my favorite one. He's the big dude with like the handlebar mustache. Uh, Tomas Delgado, played by uh, Piotr Adamchek. Uh, also does a really great job, more so in uh, episode two, which I'll, I'll highlight when in, when we get to that spoiler review. And so as I mentioned before, this fight sequence is very, very different because Kate doesn't have the ability to get herself cover as easily, as readily as she did in the wine cellar during the black market auction. This is, She is caught out in the open and surrounded by the tracksuit mafia, meaning she would have to fight more of them at once, which is not really possible 
for her and not really not really all that great for most people, even if they are skilled fighters like Kate Bishop clearly is. And uh, But as she is taking cover in a car, and it looks like that's not going to end very well for her, Clint Barton comes in and saves the day, uh, pulls the Ronin into an alley, unmasks Ronin and, and sees Kate Bishop and says, of course, his reaction is, come on. And then she says, you're Hawkeye. And he asks, and who the hell are you? And that is the end of our episode. And this was such a great first episode overall and giving us a sense of, of these two characters and, and what they're going through, you know, separately before bringing them together. But this ending, I, I really loved. I think this ending would have worked. Uh, it would have worked great if this episode was released all by itself, but it works even better because they released the second episode in tandem. So you get an immediate payoff because they could have waited until episode two to have uh, to have the first meeting between Kate Bishop and Clint Barton, and you can justify that over a six-episode series to take a little bit longer before bringing them together. But it's such a terrific act break uh, between one episode and the next. Uh, and I also just really thought that it added to the pacing of this. The series doesn't feel fast, but it is getting a, a lot of things done in a fairly short amount of time. So it just feels like it's 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 moving at exactly the pace that it needs to for the story that it's telling and for mm -hmm. these two characters. And just knowing that we would get the immediate follow-up to Who the Hell Are You by just hitting play next episode uh, was perfect. But overall, I love this episode. I, I thought it mm -hmm. was a, a great, great first episode. And we've had some, we've had a few great first episodes of these Disney Plus series so far. Uh, but this one is is right up there as an introductory episode. And it had, just had the right mix as well. Like, I mm. felt like it leaned a little bit more into Kate Bishop, uh, Kate Bishop's world than Clint Barton's, but that makes sense because even though the series is called Hawkeye, they're both Hawkeye. Clint Barton, we already know a lot better, so we needed more time with this introduction to uh, to Kate Bishop, but it didn't come at the expense of Clint Barton, whom we got plenty of focus and, and the types of scenes that we never got with this character in movies. So a lot of really great balance uh, in this episode, and I enjoyed it very much. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm with you on that one, Sean. I I I didn't expect to not like the show, but I was really surprised how much I liked the show. Uh, I love the original comic book. It's, you know, one of Marvel's recent all-time greats. And, you know, again, I'm not the biggest Hawkeye fan. I love Kate Bishop. So that, that was one of the reasons I was looking forward to the show. But I was not prepared for the charismatic, uh, you know, portrayal of you know, Haley. And I wasn't prepared for enjoying the family aspect of Jeremy Renner and his performance and everything and, and the writing being very, very... Uh, very, very clever and smart. And I thought very, very tight storytelling, to be honest, for the most part. And I really, I was really enjoyed it. And I can't wait to talk about number two, uh, number two, uh, episode two. And, you know, what I, I want to say too, is that, uh, this is a great example of showing you again, the flexibility. And I think the, uh, diverse, uh, kind of storytelling that Marvel can do. And I just was, it was kind of brought to me and like, man, I just I always no under, underestimate Marvel because I'm a obviously a diehard Marvel zombie, but it's like I just I'm I'm surprised how well they execute things and make things feel so different. And this is a great introduction uh, to the everything. Um, yeah, I, I love this. I love this series. I know I try I try to be very uh, cryptic on, online for a reason because it's just fun to hear people talk about their you know points and not just on um, read words. You know, I want people to hear my inflections and my my bumblingness. You know, a lot of you love that. Uh, but, uh, you know, the thing is in the end, I, I just really like the show a lot and I'm really excited to talk about the next episode and I'm really excited to see where it goes because even though I have an idea, 
because I've read the series and I kind of know where, where things are kind of likely headed. I, I still don't know exactly how they're going to get there. And with, with the addition of a uh, swordsman, the addition of other people, I'm like, I have no idea where they're, how this is going to end completely. So it's really exciting for me as a fan. So I, I home run first episode home run. Yeah, I was completely delighted by it. I was so happy that I got to watch an episode immediately after. That's how I felt. Maybe the best mm. best way I could explain how I felt. Although, I mean, I guess, you know, you could love something and also be happy to just kind of sit with it by itself for a little while. But in this case, I, I loved what I saw. And I was so, so, so happy that I could immediately click on the next episode because I was just having such a good time with this. And as I said at the top, I think it's the right series at the right time for Marvel Studios and with all due love and respect to everything else that we've seen this year. And I'm not trying to say this is the best thing that Marvel Studios has done all year. I'm not even thinking about that just yet. But in its own place, in its own time, I love what they're doing with this Hawkeye series from the jump. It is everything that I hoped it would be and more. And it really does capture the holiday spirit and vibe in so many ways that I, I thought maybe it would just be superficial with Christmas decorations in the background. Uh, but they're really going for that element in addition to everything else that's going on with the more Marvel-y aspects and the more character-based aspects that are always the best uh, as we're getting with Clint Barton and Kate Bishop. There's just so much good stuff here. This uh, series so far has emotional heft while at the same time just being really, really fun and I was so delighted by this very first episode and so happy that there was another episode to watch immediately after and so happy that we get to record an episode of the podcast immediately after this one. So if you are listening to this now, then you should also have our episode two spoiler review available. So make sure you go check that out. And it's easiest to keep up with what we're doing by following us in those places you can at MCU Fan Show on Twitter and Instagram, and also just subscribing to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts, if you haven't already. And remember to check out Fan Show Plus either at patreon.com slash Sean Gerber, that's S-E-A-N-G-E-R-B-E-R, or search for Fan Show Plus or the MCU Fan Show channel on Apple Podcasts so you can get extra episodes that are just for premium subscribers in either of those places. That, once again, is Fan Show Plus. Paul, where can they find you? You can find me on Twitter at Herman22 with two N's, a.k.a. P-Thug. Also, please follow and subscribe to my YouTube channel, The Comic Binge, where we go through all kinds of comic book goodness. And this week, uh, my buddy Chris and I, are Clow, as Sean well knows, uh, will be dig uh, dissecting uh, some Eternals and Avengers Black Knight comic books. So for some MC-required reading, I'm going to be diving into where to go post-Eternals. I'm really excited about that. Also, check out my new web comic book, The Space Demons, or I, I, should, say, I should say just Space Demons. It's on Webtoons. Uh, type in Space Demons. It should be there. It's under my comic binge name as well. Check that out. My buddy Antonio and I uh, released part one a few weeks ago. He's hard at work at part two. Uh, life gets in the way. I'm hoping, hoping to get part two done before the end of the year. I'm not sure it's going to happen, but we're going to give it a shot our best. But it should happen if not at the uh, beginning, the end of this year, beginning uh, early next year. Um, but either way, we're working on that. Got some cool stuff planned for next year for comic book stuff. So, yeah, really excited. Check that out. And, uh, yeah. Appreciate you all for everyone who's already supported uh, the channel and uh, and supported the comic book. Thank you. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Mr. Sean Gerber. So for Paul, I'm Sean. Thanks for listening. We'll see you I mean, right now if you want to.